Rooted Week 7, How Can I Make the Most of My Life, Part 2, Weekly Memory Verse. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Matthew 25, 40. Day 1, Compassion in Action. We've all had bad neighbors. You know the ones. They come in all forms. The old guy who yells at the kids for riding their skateboards on the sidewalk and then swears under his breath. Or maybe it's the guy who insists on mowing his lawn at 7 a.m. on the weekend. Or the family with the teenagers who have loud parties that seem to go on all night. Given the time, we could all share stories about our crazy neighbors. It's these kinds of neighbors that make a particular story Jesus tells hard to believe and even harder to obey. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Luke 10, 25-37 The religious law expert asked Jesus whom he had to love in order to gain eternal life. He was most likely looking for a way out, hoping Jesus was going to make this easy. But that wasn't how Jesus responded. Instead, his answer turned conventional expectations upside down. Portraying a Samaritan in positive light would have come as a shock to Jesus' audience. Even Jesus identified the man as despised. There was no question how, Jesus, how Jews felt about the Samaritans. It would have been bad enough if Jesus had called this religious man to love a Samaritan, but Jesus actually goes further. He makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Let's focus on this despised Samaritan. First, the Samaritan felt compassion for the Jewish man. Your dictionary defines compassion as sorrow for the sufferings or trouble of another, accompanied by an urge to help, deep sympathy, pity. Jesus said the Samaritan felt compassion for the Jewish man, someone he knew would have hated him and had he been conscious and aware of the Samaritan's presence. Regardless, the Samaritan acted on his compassion and went to the man, seemingly without concern for his own well-being, not knowing if those who had robbed and beaten the Jew were still present and would have him as their next victim. What did it cost the Samaritan to help the injured Jewish man? Quite a bit, actually. 
He had to get his hands dirty. The injured man was left naked, beat up and bloodied, close to death. The Samaritan would have had to touch him, pick him up, and assess his injuries. The social and religious ramifications of these two men touching were staggering. In the story, it says the Samaritan took his own possessions and soothed the man's wounds with olive oil and wine. After he attended to the Jew's wounds, he put him on his own donkey. This couldn't have been an easy task, as the Jewish man was near death and naked. The Samaritan took him to an inn, got a room, and tended to the patient all night. We don't know what kind of care the Samaritan had to administer through the night, but we know he kept the Jewish man alive, and well enough that he left him to continue to heal inside the room. On his way out, the Samaritan went to the innkeeper, asked him to continue to take care of the recovering Jew, and told him he would cover all the ensuing expenses. The compassion the Samaritan had for his fellow man, his neighbor, was remarkable. We don't know for sure, but it seems the Samaritan didn't hesitate to help the Jew. He had no obligation to help. Social norms dictated he shouldn't help, but he did so because it was part of who he was. There was no question in his mind that the Jew needed help and he was the one to give it. At the end of the story, Jesus asked the question back to the religious law expert. Who was the neighbor to this man? And the answer came back, the one who showed him mercy. With the correct answer being stated, Jesus then issues a command, now go and do the same. Regardless of who it is that is in need, show compassion, extend mercy, and get your hands dirty. Jump in and start meeting the needs of whoever might need it. We don't know how the religious expert responded, but we do know how Jesus expects us to live. Jesus demonstrated his servant's heart on many, many occasions prior to and following the telling of, his, of this parable. He had dined with outcasts, healed lepers, restored sight to the blind. All these groups were part of the marginalized community of his day. He left no doubt about what it meant to live a life of service to others. He didn't perform service projects. He lived a lifestyle of service. He didn't go on missions. He lived a missional life. For the readings this week, we will build on the perspectives and truths taught in the story of the Good Samaritan to challenge and guide each one of us to love those in need in the real and practical ways that Jesus did. Daily Response Who are the marginalized people and outcasts of society today? Who is your neighbor? Write a prayer, asking God to show you your neighbor. Pray for the opportunity to meet their needs and move into a life of service. Day 2. Hands-on Love When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one to 40 Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Luke 14, 12-14 It is in these passages we learn that Jesus expects his followers to be concerned about and to care for those less fortunate than themselves inside the family of believers and outside. As followers of Jesus, we will be held accountable for the way we treat others, and as we care for the marginalized and oppressed, it is as if we care for Jesus himself. When we consider these words, it changes the way we see those in need. Jesus knew he would make us uncomfortable by telling us these things. Look at that passage again and focus on whom it describes. Hungry, thirsty, homeless, shivering, sick, incarcerated, overlooked, ignored. That's a long list. Many times we describe those less fortunate than ourselves as poor and needy. It is this way of thinking that gives us the easy solution of giving money to the problem and considering our job done. But when we really listen to what Jesus is saying, we understand it is more than just giving money to the problem. It is being involved and part of the solution. Look at the action statements in this passage. You fed. You gave. You stopped. You came. You did. These are relational words. They aren't things you can do from afar. These are actions that require you to be there, to be involved. These are words that show love for another person. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. John 13:35. Notice it doesn't say, give your money, and that will prove you follow Jesus Christ. It says, if you love one another. It is about relationship. Following Jesus means rolling up your sleeves and getting involved in each other's lives. Jesus was God incarnate, meaning he became a man and came to us. God didn't love us from up in heaven. He pursued us, found us, loved us. He meets us right where we are and scoops us up in his arms no matter our state of being. This is a model of how we are to serve others. We must go. We must get our hands dirty and walk alongside those who need our help. This is not to say money isn't one way to give and help the poor, but money isn't the fix-all for poverty. And we aren't talking about a good deed here and there. Good deeds may be a result of love, but they are not one and the same. They can't replace meeting the needs of others by being there, reaching out, touching lives, and truly loving each other. That is how Jesus met the needs of others, how he meets our needs, and it is what he expects of those who follow him. Daily Response Where have you seen Jesus disguised as someone in need? What was your response?
Were you ever on the receiving end of another person's help? What did the person's actions tell you about him or her? Where are you more comfortable serving, in the church or in the community? Why is that? Write a prayer that asks God to show you opportunities to love those in need. Ask him to give you the desire and strength to respond with the heart of God and the actions of Jesus. Day 3. Symbiosis, a.k.a. give and take. Think about living in poverty. Often, when we think of the poor, images of housing projects, shelters, or third-world shantytowns come to mind. But if we only look at poverty in that sense, we miss the point completely. By thinking of others as victims that we are saving, our service becomes one-sided. The sensibility that develops is a thought that ultimately wounds us. It is better to give than to receive, so we, only, want to give. But if that giving is from a sense of superiority, we are no longer becoming like Jesus in the way we hope. Acting as if we are the only ones with something to offer, even when well-intended, injures both us by adding to our pride, and others by affirming them as fundamentally lacking. We can and must give to others, but we are not above receiving and learning from those we serve. In their book, When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert talk about poverty and how we respond. We generally understand poverty in material terms. Logically, we then assume that work among the poor is primarily about leveraging resources or skills. Yet they demonstrate that poverty as defined by those in poverty is often primarily understood in fundamentally psychological terms, terms like powerless, shameful, worthless, and others are self-applied. The surprising part of the quote above is the names those in poverty call themselves. It's shocking because most of us have felt the exact same way at some point. And most likely, we have received compassion, help, and love from God through people in our lives. Our street addresses may be different, but we, as people, are not so different from those who live in poverty. God has created us all with the same desires for relationship, intimacy, and shalom with him, with others, and with our world. Once we open ourselves to the idea that we all have more similarities than differences with those we are helping, our service comes out of compassion. And when we recognize that we are all on equal footing in God's eyes, it becomes less about us sweeping in and saving the day, and more about being open to what God will teach us through those we help. Corbett and Fickard go on, Poverty must be understood in creation-fall-redemption terms. Poverty is fundamentally the absence of shalom. Shalom is all about relationships. 
Therefore, poverty is fundamentally about the broken relationships with God, self, others, and, and the creation, and not fundamentally about lack of something. Addressing poverty, then, must be part of our understanding of the work of Christ, the gospel, the calling of the church, and the kingdom of God. This opens the door much wider and increases opportunities and possibilities exponentially. It also recognizes that serving is two-sided. We receive as much as we give in service. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms we are to show, feel, and clothe ourselves with compassion. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Isaiah 58, 10 and 11. Our compassion should also be directed toward the needs in our church. Too often, we think the hurting and disenfranchised are out there, but every church has people who struggle too, whether we visit a sick friend in the hospital or help the church function as God designed. Many people mistakenly think ministry is reserved solely for those paid to be in ministry. That's just not true. Consider Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. All of us work together to serve our church and our community. It is obvious that compassion is something God expects of us. Compassion isn't an emotion we should feel when looking at pictures of starving children. It's a lifestyle that is demonstrated in practical action. When we engage with the people we are serving, really listen to their stories and get to know them, it doesn't feel like service anymore. It feels like friends, enjoying each other's company, and doing life together. This is what Jesus has in mind when he calls us to help those in need. As we do, our hearts grow. Daily Response How does this definition of poverty change your view of those in need? What is your reaction when you encounter situations of injustice? Where have you experienced the compassion of God in your life? Where have you experienced the compassion of others? Where have you experienced a lack of compassion? Write a prayer expressing your feelings about poverty, yours and others, as well as your desire for a lifestyle of compassion.
Day 4. A Lifestyle of Service The majority of the times Jesus healed, blessed, and served others, it was an interruption. In Luke 8, as Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' dying daughter, an ill woman touched the hem of his robe, and through her faith she was healed. Both Matthew and Luke tell the account of the centurion beseeching Jesus to heal his slave as he entered the city of Capernaum. Jesus marveled at the faith of this man, and in that moment he healed his trusted servant. In the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we read the story of a paralyzed man lowered down through the roof of a crowded house just to get Jesus' attention. In that interruption, Jesus not only healed the man's physical ailments, but his spiritual needs as well. When we are open to serving God by loving his people in a hands-on way, the Holy Spirit makes us aware of needs around us. If we ask Jesus for eyes like his, we see needs and are put in a position to help. But know that it may not be convenient. Even so, through the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts, ours can be a lifestyle of service. God's plan isn't for us to do a good thing every now and then. It's for us to adopt the heart of Jesus and ache for those who are in need. It's for us to use our gifts, talents, and time in big and small ways to help change the lives of others and draw them closer to a relationship with their Heavenly Father. Earlier this week, we read about the Good Samaritan, the man who, with great sacrifice, helped someone in great need. The opportunities around us may not be as dramatic, but if we are aware, we will see them. Do you know someone who has lost his or her job? What if you brought them a bag of groceries or offered to watch their kids while they ran errands? Is there an elderly neighbor on your street who could use some help with some home repairs? Maybe there's a family at your child's school whose car broke down and their kids need a ride. These little acts of service don't take much time or money, but they demonstrate Jesus' heart and lifestyle of service. And the thing is, you won't know about them unless you are involved and present in the lives of those around you. We are called to love one another as we do in a family. Then we are told to honor one another. Honor means to treat people as though they are valuable, to treat them with high esteem, dignity, and respect. We must assume the position of humility in order to honor others. Proverbs 15.33 says, Fear of the Lord teaches wisdom. Humility precedes honor. And Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. In the eternal hierarchy of Christianity, God is first, others are second, and self is third. Christian maturity begins to grow when you can sense your concern for others outweighing your concern for yourself. A way of honoring others is serving others. If we look at Romans 12, 9-16 again and focus on verse 11, we will see specifically the next commandment for belonging to a church is to serve. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. We are to have the same servant heart as Jesus. We are called to serve with humility and with purpose, to show love and prove we are his disciples. In that same sense, we also need to be aware of the needs inside the church. The church cannot function without the volunteer service of others. As the body of Christ, we are all equipped to serve one another in some capacity. Ephesians 4, 11-12 says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service and so that the body of Christ may be built up. Each of us has gifts that can be of service inside the church. Think about a typical weekend when you come to church relative to Ephesians 4, 11-12 above. No matter the size of the church, volunteer service is critical. Numerous volunteer hours are required to just put on weekend services. Once we belong to the church, it is our responsibility to serve within it. 
The hope is that as members of a church, of a family, we discover the areas in church where we can serve enthusiastically. When we consider people coming to church for the first time, we want to create a welcoming environment, free of stress or confusion. Our goal isn't to get people inside the church building. It is to provide a place where they can meet Jesus, where they can get answers to some of life's most complex questions. We want people to be shown love, prayed over, and find the healing they need. To do that, it takes all of us, the whole family, pitching in to help. The Matthew 25 passage reminds us that when you do those things, when you help someone in routine or life-altering ways, the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Daily Response What are obstacles to a lifestyle of service that you have experienced? What are things you can do this week in service to someone in your life and or those living in poverty? Ask God to give you his eyes for those in need. Ask him to show you opportunities to serve someone who needs it. Thank him for the work that he will do in your own heart as you move toward a lifestyle of service. Day 5. Return to Shalom In his book, Walking with the Poor, Principles and Practices of Transformational Development, Bryant Myers suggests that in order to arrive at the ultimate causes of poverty, one must go deeper to consider the fundamental nature of reality. Myers notes God is a relational being who established several foundational relationships for humans at the point of creation, which we discussed in the first week of Rooted. We each have a relationship with others inside and outside our community, with creation, and with God. These foundational relationships express themselves in, among other things, the social systems, political, economic, and religious, we develop at the local, national, and global levels. Sin has marred all of these relationships and the social systems that emanate from them, leading to Meyer's description of the fundamental causes of poverty. Poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of shalom in all its meanings. The epic story of the Bible is one of redemption and shalom. The very reason God sent his son to earth was to reconcile us back into a loving relationship with him and restore peace, shalom, in that relationship and all others. He offers us shalom within ourselves, with those around us, and with creation. As followers of Jesus, we are called to nurture those relationships. We have a responsibility to help bring shalom to our communities and our culture. We can do this by reaching out, moving outside the comfort of our churches and toward those people who, for whatever reason, are outside of the circle. We move toward the marginalized, the poor, the hopeless, the unlikable, remembering we experience the same poverty they do. We bring help, hope, and love. God, through us, brings shalom to our world.
Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. 1 John 3, 18 and 19 During this week, we have learned about reaching out in tangible ways to those in need. But simply completing the readings or feeling sympathy for those who are hurting doesn't fulfill our responsibility to others. Compassion requires action. Discuss with your rooted group how you can regularly get involved in helping those in need. Imagine what would happen if not only all the people in your rooted group, but if all the people in your church practice compassion in your community. No one, in or out of the church, could deny the power of Christ's love. Daily Response What are your thoughts about our call to help bring peace, shalom, to our world? Is it overwhelming for you, or does it excite you? Thank God for the gift of his peace and love. Ask him to show you ways you can reach out to people with a heart to bring peace to your community and culture.